Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Compass Church. We've probably got new people here. I hope you're uh, enjoying yourselves, and I hope that you're blessed. Every, every week we open up the Bible and we study it together, believing that this book was written by him as a tool for us to get to know him and enjoy him. We're in a series called Apex. It's a study of Mount Sinai. It's an 11-week study of the 11 months that the Israelites camped at Mount Sinai, and they were there to get to know God. And we're trying to learn from them in pursuit of that same aim, believing that the, the apex of life, that the summit of life, life at its best, is found in friendship with God. I wanted to share with you a story about my grandma. Can you believe I still have a grandmother who's alive? She's 97 years old, and we just adore her. She is a saint. A woman loves Jesus, has all of her life. A woman of holiness, of great character, uh, and great determination. She should be in a wheelchair, but she refuses to use a wheelchair. She grabs the walker and she says, I'll be okay, I'll be okay, I'm going to walk. And sure enough, she just keeps walking, goes to her church every weekend uh, at 97 years old. Not only are her legs failing her, but her lungs are failing her. And the doctor said that she needs to be on oxygen 24-7. She's like, do they have oxygen that's mobile? And he's like, well, yeah. She goes, I like being mobile. And so she's got a mobile oxygen unit. And when we got together with her just a few weeks ago, uh, my dad picked her up and brought her to his house. And my family was there. And we're always excited to see Great Nana is what they call her. Now, Jake is both fascinated and a bit terrified by her (laughs) because he her breathing is labored, and he's fearful that each breath is going to be her last. So he's watching her going, don't die. Please don't die on me. You know, stick around. And uh, when it came time for her to leave, we all you know, want to help. I, I immediately rushed to her side and grabbed her elbow and assisted her as she walked her way to my dad's car. And it was so cute because Jake saw me doing that. An eight-year-old kid decides he wants to do the same. So he runs to the other side of her and grabs her elbow, starts rubbing her back. (laughs) It's so adorable. And as we walk to the door, he says, great Nana, thanks for coming. It was good to be with you. He says, have a good time breathing. You know, he started to have a good time and started thinking, what does she do? She breathes. Have a good time breathing. (laughs) May every breath bring you great joy. Now, thankfully, she laughed at my son's comment. But the moment, the awkward moment got more awkward as we got out to the car. And she went to the passenger side and she sat down carefully. And then I wanted to help, and so I rushed in to take her walker and put it in the trunk, failing to remember that her oxygen tank was attached to the walker, you know, with the tube going to her nose, you know? So I grabbed that, boom, you know? <laughs> and the poor lady, Jeff, Jeff, oh, oh, yeah, I about ripped her nose right off. <laughs> Felt so bad, but she's very, as I mentioned, she's gracious, very gracious, so. The image <coughs> of my <coughs> sorry <coughs> the image of my grandmother, this uh, old lady, pushing past physical limitations, being assisted by those who love her 
and are inspired by her. It's kind of a picture of our passage today. We have a senior citizen as the lead character. It's Moses. Moses is 80 years old. At that point, 80-year-olds should have no business climbing rugged mountains. But Moses is going to a climb to the top of Mount Sinai. And he's going to have his aide, uh, Joshua, by his side, holding him, helping this old man make his way up to this great mountain. And my prayer for us is that we'll follow him, that we'll go to the very top. When, when we talk about the mountain again, it's so important to know that the Lord used this physical geographic element as a picture for us. And this message is called Elevation. Because at differing elevations on this mountain, their experience of God was different. As we're about to see, only Moses, who made it to the very peak, experienced the most profound manifestation and encounter with the living God. So, you ready? This series is a study in the second half of the book of Exodus. And today, specifically, we are in Exodus chapter 24. So, let's turn there now. Exodus 24, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord instructed Moses, come up here to me. So what is God saying? He's saying, climb. Moses, climb up the mountain. Come to me. All right? But God adds, he says, come up here to me and bring along with you Aaron, your brother, Nadab and Abihu, that's Aaron's sons, and 70 of Israel's leaders. All of them must worship, but at a distance. You alone, Moses, are allowed to come near to the Lord. The others must not come too close. And remember that none of the other people are allowed to climb on the mountain at all. So we see here that in God's instructions, based on his instructions, the people were going to have differing experiences at different elevations. The majority of the Israelites were forbidden to climb on the mountain at all. In fact, uh, in the book of Exodus, it says that Moses set up warning boundary stones, setting up a perimeter around the mountain as a reminder to the people that they're not even allowed to touch it. In fact, it was a capital offense. You would die if you violated the holiness of God by touching the mountain uninvited. And so the first level, if we go to a diagram of Mount Sinai, level one is the majority of the people, most of Israel, who were to remain at the foot of the mountain but not climb it. The second group was the 70 elders. Did you catch that? They were invited to come up, to start the climb but not climb all the way. We'll call it level two. And their encounter of God was much more rich. Read with me. I'm in verse nine now. It says, then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 leaders of Israel, they climbed up the mountain. Check this out. There they saw the God of Israel. (laughs) Wow. They saw God. Simply put, they saw God. Now, what did they see exactly? This is a little troubling because the Bible says later in the same book that no one can see God and live. And how did they live if they saw God? Apparently, the Bible says that the full manifestation of God, his greatness, his power, his holiness is so intense that if fully revealed, we couldn't 
take it. We would die from the exposure. And so how did they live? I don't know. Maybe God revealed part of his glory and not all of it. Or maybe they didn't look straight into the face of God. There's some uh, evidence towards that theory as we look at the second part of verse 10. It says, Under his feet there seemed to be a pavement of brilliant sapphire as clear as the heavens. So it's interesting. Here they say they saw God, and yet the only thing that's described is what he was standing on. That the ground, the, the heavenly ground, was like this pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky. And so the theory goes that they are describing the pavement because that's all they could see. They were falling on their faces. They were casting their eyes down because they couldn't look at God. And so maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe they had him in full expression but only looked down to preserve their lives. I don't know. But it says that they saw God. Can you imagine what it must have been like? It gets even better. Let, let me read the next verse, verse 13. I'm sorry, verse 11. And though Israel's leaders saw God, he did not destroy them. So the writer is admitting that, I know, I know, they're supposed to die, but I'm telling you, they saw God and they didn't die. In fact, they shared a meal together in God's presence. How cool is that? Um, I'm guessing that the idea to eat together was God's idea. And I I say that because I don't think anyone who's on their face trembling before a manifestation of God would say, wait a minute, you know, I'm getting hungry. I think I'll grab my sandwich. No, I'm thinking the Lord said, hey, guys, stand up. I want to share a meal with you. And this decision of God's to share a meal together is a picture of the relational intimacy that God longs to have with us. When you think about it, a meal being shared both in the biblical days and today is very, uh, it's how we celebrate relationship. Your family may eat together, having dinner around the table, celebrating the oneness there. Valentine's Day, try to get reservations at a restaurant. You better try now because every restaurant in town is going to be packed out because people, lovers, enjoy a meal together. That's what we do. And so these people gathered around with God and they ate with him and drank with him and laughed with him and told stories with him, maybe asked questions of him. What an encounter. Are you jealous? We don't know fully what it was like, but I'll tell you this, I want it. Whatever those guys experienced, I want it. Well, as good as they had it, it gets even better. Look at the next verse, verse 13 and 14. Moses and his assistant Joshua climbed up the mountain of God. So his assistant by his side, named Joshua, joined him, and they climbed even higher. Moses told the other leaders, you guys got to stay here and wait for us until we come back. And so let's go back to the diagram. The elders come to level two. Moses says, that's as far as you can go. Joshua is able to go even higher, to what we'll call level three. To what extent Joshua felt the love of God even more profoundly or passed in his presence even more profoundly? I don't know. All I know is the way God worked it, the higher you go, the more you get. And only Moses was allowed to go up to level four. Let's take a look at that. Uh, Verse 16 and 18. 
And the glorious presence of the Lord rested upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. So Joshua and Moses for six days, are kind of looking at this cloud hovering at the summit, maybe deliberating, should I go? Should I go? And then finally, on the seventh day, God says, go. On the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from the cloud. And then Moses disappeared into the cloud as he climbed higher up the mountain. And Moses stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Got to imagine this with me. From Joshua's perspective, he said, Moses says, you know, the Lord said, only me, Joshua, I got to leave you here. And Moses says, I'll be all right. And Moses, by himself, continues to climb into the cloud, into the manifest presence of God, into the summit where God's revelation is on display. And he was there for 40 days and 40 nights. I'm trying to get my mind around that. What was it like? Did he enter into the very love of God, the very embrace of God? Did God engulf him and, uh, and surround him? Did he bask in the ecstasy of nearness to God? I don't know. But that is connection with the Almighty and the greatest expression. Let's go back to the diagram again. Folks, if you were to ask the people of Israel, hey, you went to Mount Sinai, yes. Hey, did you experience God? They'd all say yes. But we just discovered that though they'd all say yes to that, the level at which they interacted with him was very different. And you know what's interesting? I find this to be true of us Christians as well. If you ask Christians, say, hey, hey, so you, uh, do you experience God? Most would say, oh, yeah, 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 sure, I'm a Christian. And yet most Christians are at level, just as most of Israel was at level one, so most Christians are at level one. Most would say, I believe God is real. In fact, I prayed to him, I became a Christian, I asked Christ to forgive my sins and lead my life. And I said a few prayers, I felt like they were bouncing off the ceiling. Quite honestly, I don't pray that much. God feels very distant to me. I don't really experience him in that way. Now, some would say, no, no, I, I experience him some. I've had some profound moments, you might say, where I actually, I remember that time I felt like God was right there. I remember that time where the love of God was so real to me, I just had this sense, he really loves me. Or that time I felt like he was speaking in my heart. I, I, I felt like he was telling me what to do. And someone would say, yeah, I, I'm seeking more of those moments. Others would say, God's presence is my greatest joy. Every day I am reaching out to him, striving to grow closer to him because being with him is life at its best. And then there are some at level four, maybe you've met some of these Christians, it just seems that their whole day is engulfed in the presence of God. These are Christians who wake up in the morning and they say, good morning, Lord, do this day with me again as we did yesterday. And God's presence is just unforgotten. They just bask in his love and he leads them and he encourages them and he guides them. I'm jealous of them. I want that. Two questions for you, okay? Two questions. The first is, and don't lie to yourself, all right? What level are you at? Go ahead and use decimals if you'd like. I'm at 1.78. What level are you really at? in your own experience of God. 
And the second question is, what level do you want to be at? And I'm guessing that for all of us, we want to be at a higher level than we're at. If God can be known and enjoyed, we want to enjoy more of him. And that begs the question, how? How can we go up the mountain, figuratively speaking? How can we experience more of this invisible God? And I'd like to go back to our logo to kind of summarize how that is done. Remember this? Uh, you didn't get it at first, but then I explained it. The, the down arrow represent God, represents God coming to us. His revelation or manifestation of his presence, his love, his voice. The up arrow represents us seeking him, pursuing him. And when people don't have a divine encounter, and they say, what's up? How come I don't experience him? I normally point to this arrow. I say, because you're not seeking him. The Bible promises in Jeremiah 29, 13. God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. This is the arrow that I obsessed with. I constantly challenge myself and others. We need to pray. We need to read the Bible in pursuit of the face of God. We need to worship, seeking to encounter his majesty. We need to meditate throughout our day. We need to seek God. And it's true, we do. And we're going to talk more about that arrow as this series progresses. But in this particular message, I want to talk about this arrow. Because this passage we just studied seems to emphasize this arrow. And that is, God has to make a decision to let us see him. You know, you look at this arrow in this passage. Why didn't the Israelites experience more of God? Because he decided, that's all of me you're going to get. Stay down there. Why did the 70 get more? Because God decided, I'll show you more of myself, but no more. Why did Moses get the most? Because God invited him to the top and permitted it. And so we find that God must reveal, choose to reveal himself to us. And one of the things I've found, both in Scripture and in life, is that God doesn't reveal his presence to everybody in the same way. To some, he blesses with greater levels of manifestation, with others less. And you say, that's not fair. I agree. And it begs the question, how do I get to be one of those people that he manifests himself to more? How do I get to be like Moses, who's invited to the very top? What do you have to do? What's the ticket to the summit of Mount Sinai? And I've been scouring the Bible for answer to that question. Try to say, why Moses? Why Joshua? Why the 70? I found a very pertinent passage. If you will, flip to the Psalms. I want to show you Psalm 24, verse 3 and 4. Check this out. Tell me if you think this applies. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's who. Interesting. God says the prerequisite for being allowed to experience greater encounters of God's manifestation are clean hands and a pure heart. Clean hands refers to the purity of our actions. A clean heart refers to the purity of our inner life. I'd like to focus the rest of our time on the inner life, the clean heart. Quite honestly, if you grow as a, in your clean heart, your actions will just flow out of that inner purity. And so let's, let's talk about a clean heart. I actually have a, 
this is a good time to be looking for hearts. They're all over in every store you go to. And I found a glass heart, and I thought, perfect. Uh, this is going to sit before us as a reminder that the ticket, the pass that's needed to climb Mount Sinai is a pure heart. What is a pure heart? You know, our heart, our inner life, is our motives. You know, some people are very selfish. They're very ambitious, selfish ambition. They're driven for me, me, me. That's not a pure heart. They lack love for others. Others are very selflessly loving of others. That's purity of heart. Uh, Lust darkens a heart. Pride darkens a heart. Purity is humility and love and kindness and honesty and integrity. These inner beauty. Jesus is the model of inner beauty. And are you even aware of what's going on in your heart? The Bible says that we need purity of heart. Now, let me clarify something. Someone reasonably could say, maybe all that's needed is that you get forgiven. Maybe we don't actually have to be pure of heart. We just need to be given. In other words, there's a process in the Bible called justification. When someone becomes a Christian, they are justified. It means that God forgives them, and they receive positional purity of heart. They stand holy before God. When he sees them, he sees them as forgiven. Maybe that's all it's saying is you have to be forgiven. You don't actually have to change. Well, the second gift of God, purity-wise, is not positional purity through justification, but the second one is practical purity through sanctification. Sanctification is the process the Bible talks about where day by day God makes us a little bit more like him. He changes us. He grows us. And practically, our heart just is different. The junk that clouded our heart before doesn't cloud our heart as much anymore. And so the question could be, is this positional purity or practical purity that God's looking for? And I think the answer is both. I think the answer is yes, you need to be a Christian. You need to positionally be righteous before the Lord and cleansed of your sin. But I also believe that to experience the greatest summit manifestations of God, you need to grow in purity practically. And one of the reasons I believe that is what Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Maybe you'll remember Matthew 5, 8. Jesus got into the uh, Beatitudes, they're called. And one of them is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? They will see God. Jesus said there is a connection between sanctification and manifestation. There is an undeniable connection between your growth and purity of heart and your experience of God. And folks, when we see this so clearly, it begins to make sense as to what happened at Mount Sinai. Moses was a man of unbelievable purity of heart. God said in his Bible that there was no one on planet Earth as humble as Moses. God said, of all of my people, I trust the heart of Moses most of all. You know, the 70 elders that were invited up, Moses was the one that picked those 70 leaders, and he says that his criteria was purity of heart for selecting them. And we begin to see, aha, I'm getting it, I understand. So if I want to experience more and more of God, if I want to see him more and more, according to Jesus, 
What I need is purity of heart. Now, let me state it in a really positive way. God is not done with you yet. God wants to change your heart. One year from now, God's plan is that your heart would be more pure, more like Jesus than it is today. And the benefit of that purity of heart will be that you will experience more of God's revelation, the the sense that he's there and the sense of his love and the sound of his voice will become more apparent as you grow more like him. And so that begs the question, how? How can I get my heart more pure? You know, those of you who are real action-oriented, oh, that settles it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to purify my heart. Good luck. The only one who can purify your heart is God. All human effort to purify the heart will fail. David cried out, create in me a clean heart. Oh, God, he's the great surgeon of the heart. And you say, well, then how can God help me purify my heart. There is in the Psalms a verse that describes a heart purification process by which we can engage with the Lord. And I'd like to read it now because it's a great how-to. How. uh, This is found in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. You ever prayed this? The psalmist prays, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. And know my thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you, and then lead me along the path of everlasting life. That first part is really hard. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my thoughts. Point out any problem in my heart. Wow. You know why that point is so important? is because we all lack self-awareness as to the purity of our hearts. In fact, when I held up this heart and said, you know, how's your heart? Some of you are like, yeah, you know, I got a pretty pure, pretty pure heart. Yeah, that's what I got, a pure heart, you know. And you really believe that. And yet if your heart were put up next to Jesus, you would realize, oh my. I don't know if you want to do this. Some of you say ignorance is bliss. Well, here, here's the challenge. Ask the Lord to remove your ignorance. Lord, search me. Test me. Show me. By your spirit, Make me aware of the junk in my heart. And he'll do it. If you want him to do that, if you're asking him to do that throughout your day, all of a sudden you'll have one of these epiphany moments where God's Spirit's saying, there it is, look at that. Look how you're lusting. Look how you're so self-centered. Look at how you are so prideful. And you'll be like, ah, I didn't, I didn't want to see that. I was wonderfully naive If you remain naive, you'll never change. The first courageous step is awareness. You've got to realize, that's what I'm going to call it, point one. You've got to realize the problem and invite God to show you, Lord, I don't want to be blind to it. I want to see it. Show me. Number two is repent. Search me, O God, know my heart. Test me, know my thoughts. God, you point out anything that offends you, and then you lead me the other way. Repentance literally means to turn away from your sin. And that's what we see here. When we say, God, show it to me, when I see it, Lord, I'm not going to say, oh, look how disgusting that is. Let's just ignore it. No. God, when I see that disgusting stuff in my heart, I'm going to repent. I'm going to say, Lord, I hate my sin. I hate that this is in my heart. Jesus, by your grace, forgive me. 
and change me, turn me the other way. You know, those who process their, when they see their own corruption and process that with the Lord, they, through repentance, they change. Repentance is a sanctification tool. Those who repent, who wrestle with their own junk and say, God, I repent of this, are those who find him changing them. Those who just kind of ignore it and say, let's not deal with that, doesn't change. So you've got to say, Lord, I want to realize it. Show me. And then I got to repent of it. God, I'm going to, with maybe tears, cry out of how much I hate my sin and ask for your grace and forgiveness. And number three, request his help. Uh, the psalmist says, you got to lead me. If you don't lead me on the path everlasting, I'm never going to get on that path. I need your guidance. I need your assistance. I need your help. And that's why David said, Lord, you got to create in me a clean heart because I can't do it on my own. And so the, the last part of this process is after you've repented and say, oh, I am sorry. And then you say, God, I don't want to be like this anymore. Help me to not respond this way. Help me, God. Lead me in a new way, in a new heart response. And those who do this, those who have this dynamic as part of their daily spiritual experience, they find their heart changing. The Lord sanctifies them, and every year that passes, they find the junk is going away, and I find greater purity in me than used to be. And what is the great reward? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They will be invited up the mountain into the cloud and bask in greater ecstasy in the revelation of the love and glory of Almighty God. I wanted to uh, share with you just about my personal journey in these recent days. I, uh, a couple weeks ago, started reading a book a uh, real old novel. Uh, it's called Elmer Gantry. It was written 88 years ago. so a long time ago. Sinclair Lewis was the author, famous author. Started as a Christian, Sinclair Lewis did. Uh, unfortunately, drifted from his faith, abandoned the Christian faith, became very cynical of the Christian faith, died in alcoholism. And uh, this book is about his view of what a pastor is like. He really came to the conviction that most Christians were hypocrites and corrupt to the core, and really bad hypocrites were the pastors. And so Elmer, Elmer Gantry is a pastor, and this is his story, fictional, fictionalized guy, but it's cut to the heart with me. Elmer Gantry goes into ministry not because of a love for the Lord. He doesn't love the Lord. He goes into the ministry because he's in love with power. And the thought of standing on a stage under the spotlights and swaying the emotions of people has just enticed him, and he's gotten into it. He's driven by greed and wanting more money. He has no love for others. People are pawns to be used to achieve his self-ambition. He's driven by lust. Though married, he is unfaithful repeatedly to his wife. And if you want like, to be encouraged, this is not the book for you. This is really <laughs> ugly, ugly stuff. But as ugly as it is, it's done something. The Lord's used it in me. It's helped me see how beautiful 
purity of heart is, if, if they're, they're like the opposite, this Elmer Gantry character is a guy in my role whose heart is so dark. And in contrast, purity of heart has become so beautiful. Now, here's the problem. I started praying that prayer, search me and know me and see if there's anything that's wrong in me and point it out. Dangerous prayer because the Lord took me up on that opportunity. And God, by his spirit, has been showing me that there's a little Elmer Gantry living in me. Started off just, you know, so disgusted by the hypocrisy in this guy. And as I have read on, the theme that God keeps bringing back to me is, Jeff, you struggle with every single vice he does. Not to the same degree, but you've got the same stuff going on in you. That longing to be praised by people, that pride, that ambition, it's in you, buddy. And as I have seen it with greater clarity, I have been saying, God, oh, that is so ugly. I don't want to be Elmer Gantry. God, I want to be like Jesus. And I've been repenting and begging for him to forgive and asking him to lead me and change me. And I invite you to do the same because there's a little Elmer Gantry in you too. And God wants to change us. He wants to bless us through sanctifying us. And as we're sanctified, then we're invited to climb. And so folks, we're, let's go on a journey together as a church. Let's, if you were hoping for a church where it was cool to stay the same, you're welcome to seek another church because this is not the right place. We must be a people who are yearning to grow and say, Lord, I know I am not perfect. My heart is not pure like it should be. So change me. Show me and I'll repent and I'll deal with it and I'll cling to you and together we'll grow. And my prayer is that the coming days we continue to be where we're all getting serious about this growth in heart purity. And as we grow as a church in heart purity, we will grow as a church in enjoying the manifest presence of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Let that be our story. Amen. Would you pray with me? All right, Lord, we're getting real. There is not a perfect person in this room. We acknowledge that every one of us here has got junk He's got thoughts and ambitions and lusts that are so far from the heart of Christ. Would you show us now and tomorrow and the next day? Don't hide from us the condition of our heart, but expose it. Shine a spotlight on the junk. We can face it. And then we're going to bring it to you and ask for your grace and forgiveness to wash it away and to purify us and leave us holy. And then we're going to ask you to lead us on, Lord, to lead us to a place of greater purity of heart. And God, may we all be on a journey where each week, each month, each year, we are growing more like Jesus. Please, God. And as we become more like you, we pray it brings a smile to your face. And as we become more like you, we pray that you would invite us to climb more and more and more up 
and into your presence. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, uh, Stephen introduced a song a few weeks back. We've sung, some, we've sung it a few times in this series called Ascension. I'd never heard of it before, but it's perfect. I mean, it, it's like this series in song. And I pray it's the cry of your heart. It says, I want to start the ascension. I'm tired of low-level living, of valley Christianity, of God being a million miles away. I want your face, God. I want to begin the ascension. I want to climb up. I want to press into your presence. Can we stand for it? Let's stand together. And as you learn or know the song, please sing along.